The Woach Pod is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Hey everyone, welcome into an NBA regular season edition of the Woach Pod and welcome into the new general manager of the Sacramento Kings, Monty McNair. Monty, happy happy start to the season and happy start to the Kings season tomorrow night against Denver. Thanks for having me, Woj. And uh, yeah, we're excited to get going. And uh, it's been uh, been a crazy off season, but uh, but we're about to play basketball. I think that's a good thing. Well, I mean, it seems like a very 2020 thing that the new general manager of the Kings is actually in Houston. The Sacramento team he's a GM of now is in Denver, but that's your reality here for the holidays, right? Yeah, no, I think in a normal year, I'd go back and forth and make sure I was there. But uh, this year, it takes a, a week or two to test back in. And so uh, uh, after the off season that I was away from the family for a couple months, I decided to at least spend the holidays uh, with my wife and two kids. And uh, and actually, we play uh, we play the Rockets here in Houston uh, twice, a, a new two-game series, also a 2020 uh, introduction and uh, so I'll, I'll catch those two games and then we're uh, we're going to make the move up to Sacramento permanently. Yeah, it's 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 funny. I in talking to other team executives about traveling around and especially those who are living away from family right now. If you started a new job somewhere, you're not necessarily moving your family right away. And a few of them have said they're going to go back to the city they live in for the holiday for a couple of days and they can get tested daily at the facility of their old team. And so there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that going around. It's just the reality. You cannot just move around and walk back into your facility um, with, with the protocols in place. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've actually been, uh, been going back to the old stomping grounds at the Toyota center every morning to, to get my test. So, uh, so I can go to the games here and, uh, and hopefully when I do get back to SAC, ease my way in, but it's uh it's a new, yeah, it's, it's a new reality this year. Monty, how listen when you take over a new job and you become the GM of the Kings, and I would imagine the first thing you want to do is you want to get to know people and you want FaceTime with people and you want to be around them. You want to learn about them. You want them to learn about how you'd like things to go. How difficult has that been in a pandemic where you're doing so much virtually, especially when you're trying, you know, to get off the ground in a new job? Yeah, I think really the two things that you want when you're when you're starting up to get to know people is FaceTime and and just time in general. And uh, and we had neither this this off season. You know, it was so fast. Um, we went right. You know, I think I got hired um, less than two months before the uh, before the draft, and then the, it was the fastest off season ever. So there wasn't that much time. And then yeah, with the pandemic, um, you know, people aren't coming into the office. Our a lot of our scouts are remote. Um, so, you know, you didn't have the ability to just sit down and have a cup of coffee, have a meal and and get to know somebody. So phone calls and then, you know, zoom, at least you can see people, uh, and get it, put a face to a name. Uh, so that helps some, but, uh, but I say it's, you know, it's pretty hard. There's still a few, a few of our scouts who are out on the road, uh, and that, that I haven't met in person yet, but, uh, but I do feel like we've been on so many zooms. We know each other a little bit. Looking at this team, Monty, and, and taking over 14 years without a playoff uh, appearance, it certainly looms over that Kings organization. What did you know about the Kings when 
you, you're going to go in an interview with uh, ownership and, and the upper executive level. W- what did you know about Sacramento, uh, about the organization, and, and, and how did you look at it when you're an assistant GM with the Rockets and, and walking in the door to meet with those guys for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I think um, my, my actually my first recollection of uh, of Sacramento was was from the glory days growing up and watching the uh, the Vade, Jason Williams, um, all those you know Peja, all those uh, playoff teams. Um, obviously, a hard time since for Sacramento, uh, but you know I think normally you you know if you're going into a new job, um, a lot of times the cupboard's bare and uh, the cupboard's definitely not bare here. Um, we have a lot of, lot of talent on the roster, all the picks are, are there plus some, uh, some extra picks as well. And, um, you know, so as I dug in, um, preparing for the interview, I actually kept getting more and more excited. And, uh, and when eventually I got tabbed, um, you know, it was, it was a thrill and it's, it's been, uh, it's been a whirlwind, but it's been fun ever since to get to dive in on everything organizationally. It, it is a fan base, unlike many in the league. And you, you would think that a team that has not had the success since the glory days you're talking about with the Kings and been out of the playoffs that long would have a sense of apathy, would have a sense of, you know, just kind of doom and gloom and, and, and maybe not a real engaged fan base. And it is not the case in Sacramento. It remains rabid. I, 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 I'm sure you feel that when you walk in there as a GM, that it is a place that is really hungry for someone to get this turned around um, and and get this team back to relevancy in the league. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's actually been amazing, and uh, you know, I, these fans, um, you know, are certainly frustrated uh, and want a playoff team. But I have some friends of of, of teams in other leagues, especially, and they've they haven't made the playoffs in so long. And they kind of, like you said, they go into more of like an apathy or a pessimism mode of it's never going to happen. These fans in Sacramento are, are just on the like edge of their seats waiting for the, waiting to explode. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, my job and, and our team's job, uh, is, is to get them back there and get back to those, those glory days when they were making the playoffs, uh, multiple years in a row. And, uh, you know, the, the city and the fan base was, you know, rejuvenated. So, um, you know, it's, it's really, uh, that plus the, the new arena, which is fantastic. Um, you know, I do think the recipe for success is there. We just got to, uh, get the final ingredients. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that the, the, the recipe or the formula to win in Sacramento, and, and you mentioned having all of your draft picks. I mean, ultimately, is, is it that in a smaller market in, in a place that's considered maybe less, of a destination market among, you know, the Los Angeles, LA's and, you know, potentially the New York's Brooklyn, I would say New York hasn't been one, but is the draft ultimately where you have to, in a smaller market, hit on your guys to be able, you know, to really get a program turned around? I think it's certainly one of the, one of the best ways. I mean, really, you know, everybody kind of talks about there's three ways there's free agency trade and the draft, um, I think certainly the draft is a big part of that, but I think guys in this league also, they want to win and, uh, you know, you guys follow winning. And I, I think it, even in, uh, in Houston, um, which is a bigger market, uh, more of a free agent destination, you know, we had trouble, uh, 
going the free agency route, um, you know, until we had one star in place. And uh, once that happened, we were, we were much more successful. And so I think certainly, um, you know, uh, cities and, and markets can matter some, but I think, uh, I think winning can, can trump all that. And so that's, you know, I, I think once, once the wins come, the players will follow. No, and I think that's a great point, Monty. And I always thought that Dwight Howard was a real turning point for the Rockets because Dwight was the preeminent free agent at the time, and he was with the Lakers. He had forced a trade largely to the Lakers. Free agents did not leave L.A. And I thought when Dwight left L.A. to Houston, you know, Daryl Morey and, and, and the group you had in Houston – I think really sold him on the idea that this is, if you want to win, we have the setup and we have, you're the missing piece for us. I always thought that was, and then, you know, later Chris Paul, now that wasn't exactly free agency. It was, you know, the sign and trade, it was almost half free agency. But uh, do do you remember that as a turning point in Houston for uh, maybe how you were viewed around the league? Yeah, certainly. I think, um, you know, that was kind of the, the first big, um, big free agent that we landed. Um, you know, we went to a Western conference finals, um, obviously didn't have the ultimate success there, but, um, but yeah, I do think that was, that was a big turning point and, and kind of showed that, uh, that we were ready to, to take that next step. You can now stream the most MLB games on direct TV without a satellite dish. Yes. Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, Grand Slams, Web Gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. I want to talk more about the Kings, uh, Monty, but you think of kind of those formative years in Houston. And you're in a, I mean, I kind of know the setup there in the front office. And Daryl's the GM. But there's a back office. There's a back office uh, of desks and cubicles. And there was a time where it was you and Sam Hinkie and Gerson Rosas. Uh, our tourist carnishivist, now the Chicago GM or Chicago president, was, you know, was there for a fairly short time. Uh, Rafael Stone, obviously, is the GM there now. Uh, what was it like? Because Daryl wanted every idea in the world, right? He, there was nothing you couldn't throw. I've seen that big board you have in there. I've seen some pretty crazy trade ideas and, you know, some, some innovative thoughts just written up on that big whiteboard you have in there. What were those days like being a part of that and, and maybe sort of shaping, you know, how you approach the job? Yeah. And I should also add in uh, Sachin Gupta, former ESPN employee and now, mm-hmm. um, uh, now in Minnesota, uh, Eli Whitus as well, who's right. uh uh, working with Rafael still in, in Houston, but it was, yeah, it, it was fantastic. I mean, credit to Daryl um, and something I, I want to implement and, and I've started implementing here in Sacramento, which is um, it's not the idea of the most important person that's, that wins. It's just the best idea that wins. And um, yeah, I mean, I started out as a 22 year old 
you know, fresh out of college. And, um, you know, we were, it was almost like a think tank. We were there just coming up with as many crazy ideas as we could. And, um, you know, the ones that stuck, uh, we would force Daryl to, to, uh, make some calls on and, and try to get done. And, uh, you know, Sam ultimately went on to, uh, uh, to Philadelphia. Uh, but when he was there, there was a lot of meetings with, with him and our group and just, uh, you know, really trying to brainstorm as many crazy ideas as we could at, at one time. What was the craziest idea you ever remember in that room? Oh man. <laughs> Let's see. Um, I would say one is we were desperate for a top 10 pick. Uh, and I believe it was golden state one year. Um, and everybody knows you can protect picks, right? Usually protect like the top 10, but you can protect any assortment of picks you want. And at the time, I think they were the number seven pick before the lottery and they could have moved up to the top three or they could have moved back to eight. Um, if somebody else jumped them and we had, uh, three picks, 14, 16, and 18, if I recall, and we, we offered, I think 16, just for seven, only if they stuck, stuck, stood at seven. If they got one, two, or three, or eight, they just got number 16 pick for free. But if it was seven, we got to trade up for seven. And uh, that was uh, ultimately, I think both sides got a little scared. That was a little crazy. Um, but I, it, it did, we, we did come to fruition. You see all these sandwich picks. I believe we were the first one when we traded Kyle Lowry um, to Toronto where right. – they protected the top part of the draft, but we protected the back end, make sure we got a lottery pick out of it, uh, which ultimately uh, ended up being a big part of the the hardened trade. But uh, that was a pretty crazy one where we could have given up a pick for for absolutely nothing. I'm trying to think what was the the idea of giving up a pick for free. It was almost like almost like a grocery store promotion or something, right? Like you can <laughs> if you. I mean, I'm trying to think of the equivalent of it. That's I've never heard that yeah. one. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's, it was, you know, whatever it was, a, a third of the time you, you move up nine spots right. for free, but two thirds of the time you, you lose a pick for nothing. And, um, you know, like we were, we were upside seeking that then. And, uh, uh, but it was funny that, you know, you, you know, all these biases that we're all trying to, to get rid of both sides, uh, couldn't get rid of. And I think shied away at the end, but, uh, yeah, maybe a supermarket promotion. There, there's somebody. <laughs> one of the listeners will come up with a better analogy. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure they will. It, the the one thing that had been described to me, Monty, and I, I think you feel this way. You know, sometimes when you're coming up in that role in a front office, and you're not always around the players as much, or you're not around the coaches, and then you go to a place and you become GM, and maybe don't have the feel for the for the human side of it, that's been the criticism um, sometimes of, of, of people who come up your, perhaps your background, but your job in Houston for several years was really working closely with the head coach, with the locker room. And I, I wonder the impact that had on you and learning. You played football in college and you've been in the locker room and you knew, but describe the role you had working with I guess it probably went Mikhail Bickerstaff, Mike D'Antoni, uh, of maybe analytically working with them about, you know, how you're integrating some of the numbers with what they're doing on the court and, and, and sort of how that shaped your, uh, you know, maybe your progress toward becoming a GM. 
Yeah. No, I, uh, I didn't just play college uh, football, Woj. I played at the most prestigious college football program in the country at Princeton. Um, we have 28 national titles. Um, yes, the last one yeah. was like in 1910. But, uh, <laughs> and, but and, the first, and the first college football game ever against Rut- Rutgers always advertises that. Right, That's we true. played the first That's college true. football game ever. I guess it was That's Princeton. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but uh, all joking aside, it was yeah the locker room. Being around that in college, obviously, it can't compare to an NBA locker room, but it gives you a little bit of a sense of what these guys are going through. But yeah, being around the team, um, like you said, I started with with uh, Coach McHale, uh, JB Bickerstaff took over, and eventually Coach D'Antoni, and um, I, I think it helps. You know, I, I did a lot of support analytically and things like that but by far the biggest thing was um learning how to communicate to them um and it's all about you're all trying to speak the same language and what you know what is something uh that resonates with them what is something that turns them off um and then and then even outside of that like just being around the team what are the players dealing with on a day-to-day basis i mean sometimes you get into a city it's three o'clock in the morning um, you know, I wake up the next morning, I feel horrible and I, I didn't play 40 minutes that night. Um, so when you're trying to, uh, you know, push something, you know, maybe rotation wise and the coach, you know, you realize, wow, yeah, that they're dealing with, uh, trying to make sure their jet lag players are ready to go on a back to back. Um, all the pressures coaches deal with besides, you know, I used to joke with coach, um, D'Antoni and say like, Mike, how much of your job is actually coaching? And he's like, I don't know, 10%. (laughs) You know, so much of it is dealing with the media, dealing with the players, building those relationships, managing ownership in the front office and the fans and uh, the training staff and and everybody. There's, it's it's really, um, you know, it's a business in in that there's so many constituents and just being around day to day, um, I think was was really the biggest thing that helped me now in, in this job and knowing all the pressures um, and different things that these people face um, as opposed to just looking at it from the outside in. You, you mentioned whether it's working with Mike D'Antoni and knowing the things that they don't like or that don't resonate with them. What did you learn were one or two of those things that um, might seem good numerically or might seem good theoretically that don't necessarily translate the way you think they might, or you learned, Hey, that doesn't work with that. That's not what my head coach needs for me. Yeah. I would say first and foremost, and I've been working with our, with our group here in Sacramento, uh, don't use a number if you don't have to, Um, you know, you're, you know, yes. When you're trying to determine what you think is the best thing you should do, what you're comfortable with. But when you're trying to communicate that, it's about trying to find, uh, find the language that uh, that's going to work with them. And, uh, you know, coaches are much more comfortable with video, um, you know, with conversations and you're just trying to get the point across. You don't need to uh, explain the nitty gritty, just like, um, you know, just like coaches uh, when they're talking to fans don't need to get into maybe all the details of, of their scheme, right? You're trying to communicate, um, you know, a concept uh, in a way that that they can understand and and ultimately implement. And so, um, you know, I think that was a big one. Uh, we used a lot of video. I think that's a, uh, an amazing currency, right? Uh, coaches use it with players. We started using it with coaches. Um, and I think that was a great way to speak the same language. Um, but, 
yeah, it's it's uh, it's more about how can I explain this? Um, you know, how can I get get into their head and see what what would resonate with them? Not not what not just project what what resonates with me. You go to Sacramento, Monty, and you know what the perception can be when you come in as a new GM and there was a coach, Luke Walton, already in place. Well, everybody thinks, well, he's not your guy, and how are they going to build a relationship? And everybody wants to get their own guy in there. And How did you approach it with Luke from the beginning and building a relationship as a new GM with a coach who's already in place? How have you gone about that? Yeah, I mean, I think – First and foremost, uh, I don't care about my guy, quote unquote, like, you know, I'm looking for a guy that's going to help us win. And uh, the first step in that is to build a relationship uh, with him. And I think Luke said it too. I mean, he had a great relationship with Vlade and it's been hard on him. Uh, and realizing that I'm coming in from the outside, somebody, uh, we had some mutual friends, but we had, uh, you know, we had never, uh, never really met before. And so we've just spent our, our last two or three months, um, you know, just talking, especially early on, it was just, hey, let's sit down, just talk about, you know, not even basketball. Let's just talk about um, life and and how we how we just think about things. And ultimately, we got more and more into basketball. And uh, the number one thing that's been great with Luke is Luke will Luke is easy to work with, and he will listen. And I, I try to reciprocate that. And um, you know, it really is a partnership. Um, you know, there's you can't win in this league without. You know, we, we, alignment's kind of a buzzword, but it's true. Uh, ownership, front office, head coach, all the other uh, health and performance, et cetera. Uh, but it really, you know, on the basketball side, starts with the head coach and the GM, and um, so we've been building that, and so far it's been it's been fantastic. Yeah, you you, you mentioned that, Monty, and you talk about alignment, and when you go into Sacramento, listen, you know, Vivek Ranadive, the the owner there, you know, has a reputation. There's a history there of his involvement, maybe sometimes not always positive on the basketball side in terms of decision-making. What did you want to know about how that structure was going to work? Um, listen, there's very few places you're going to go in the NBA where there's just straight autonomy. I don't know if there's any GMs who really just – every decision ultimately rests at the very, very top, um, especially the big ones. How did you work through that in, in coming in the door and so that you can have a structure in place – that you feel like is streamlined enough and consistent enough um, and, and you can build a philosophy and stick by it and win. How, how did you go th- walk through that with him? Yeah, uh, that was uh, yeah part of the interview process was, was that and coming in from the outside, um, you know, you just have the, you know, the perception of, of what you've seen there, but um, yeah, it was, um, you know, really, I think the number one thing was, you know, uh, you know, will me and my staff have the, have the opportunity to um, you know build build this team in the way that, that we think is best and and part of that is taking input from lots of people. I don't like you said. I don't think uh, very very few people just make a decision uh, solely on their own. And uh, there's input from lots of places. But uh, became very comfortable that uh, his vision on on how he wanted uh, me and our front office to work uh, aligned with what I wanted. Um, and so far it's, it's, it's borne out. Um, I will say though, like so much of, of, of a GM's job these days is not to like implement his opinion. It's to take all these opinions. Um, your, your coach, your assistant GMs, the rest of your staff 
ownership, uh, your health and performance staff. And really, you're just trying to like put all these things together. And then it's once you have that decision, can you implement it? And that's um, that's what we've been able to do so far. And, uh, you know, I think that'll continue going forward. What was was the whole Bogdanovich restricted free agency, the decisions you had to make there? Was that really sort of the first test for you? of how you're going to make decisions, how you're going to take on all that input. I'm sure there were a lot of different voices there. Some people saying, let's just match an offer sheet and keep him. He's an asset. There's some, let's do a sign and trade uh, for him with Atlanta. Was that the first test of, okay, I'm in the big seat now. Um, and and this is a, a big, this is a big decision. Um, was that, was that the first one you felt like you really faced? Yeah, probably. I mean, it, it was also fast. Um, the draft was right in there too, um, but yeah, certainly the the Bogdanovich decision was uh, you know uh, front and center. Um, and yeah, we we looked at um, you know looked at a lot of different options uh, between sign and trade. Uh, you know, obviously trying to sign him as well, and then ultimately the offer sheet decision that we were were faced with from Atlanta, uh, but. It was, um, yeah, we were, we went through our process. We, you know, once we got the offer sheet, we sat down, we had uh, whatever it was, uh, a little more than 48 hours to, to go through it. And, um, you know, it was, there were, let's put all the factors on the board and let's go through them. And not once was the factor, uh, you know, anything other than what is going to, what is going to be best for this team, and this organization going forward. And um, it was a tough decision, but uh, obviously ultimately we ended up not matching, but uh, it was, it was actually probably, it, it was certainly stressful, uh, but probably the most fun one I've had so far in just like all the, all the um, components that went into it and the, you know, the compressed time frame and, and having our guys in our room uh, and on Zoom, <laughs> um, you know, kind of working through all that and, and trying to come to the best decision. And, and you, you kind of know you're going to probably be faced, listen, you're going to get criticism in the chop no matter what, but it is the hard, I would imagine it is the hardest thing. You, you I understand the reasons in doing it, but it, the one thing though some people will always say is you don't let an asset leave, right? You keep it, you get the value, you can trade them later. Was that the one where you go, uh, the first thing I'm going to do is let a guy walk and not get anything for him. Now it opens up other, it opens up a lot of other flexibility for you, but there's got to still be a moment of truth where you go, okay, like that's, that may not be well received in some corners is to do it this way. Um, There was maybe a little bit of that, mm-hmm. but um, you know, luckily, yeah, we, we were, you know, pretty focused just on what was going to be the best thing we had, um, you know, we had just gone through the draft and, and, and really been surprised and excited that, um, that Tyrese Halliburton fell to us. Um, and that kind of also gave us a little extra push that, Hey, we've got, we've got this, this guy coming in. He's a one, two, uh, we got, you know, we really, we're really excited about him to get him at 12. And, um, you know, so all those kind of things came into play, but, um, but yeah, I don't think like there's so many decisions we're going to make. And I guess maybe it was, it was one of the first and one of the biggest, but uh, um, ultimately I think what, what I took from Houston is, is you continue to make what you think is the right and best decision. And eventually they'll add up for you. Yeah. And I thought that was a very underrated part of that process was Halliburton getting to you on draft night. I was shocked. He, I was shocked he was there. There were a few teams 
who kept hitting me above you that were in front of you who, who were dying to know who was going in front of them. And I was sure a couple of them were taking Halliburton and they didn't. Um, did, did you have a sense he might get to you or were you, when he got to eight, nine, 10, you're going, okay, someone's grabbing him here. Yeah, we, uh, you know, I think the going through uh, what, 13 of these before this, uh, you kind of learn to expect the unexpected. And especially I think in this draft, um, you know, there was a lot of really good players um, and it, there was much less consensus. So we thought there was maybe a chance, but uh, we thought pretty small given what we what we saw on his film um, and in his numbers and uh, with his, you know, kind of background and everything that all added up. So, um, yeah, we were, we were definitely a little bit surprised, but, uh, you know, we were prepared, you know, like you, you got to prepare for everything. I think one of my first right. drafts, um, uh, was it Darrell Arthur? There was a guy, I think it was Darrell Arthur was supposed to go maybe in the lottery and, uh, fell all the way to the back end of the first round. And, um, you know, after that, like we stopped preparing for our pick and you just prepare your whole board cause you might move right. up or down or a player might fall and you just got to be ready. So, um, yeah, we were a little surprised, but obviously we were prepared for it. It might, I thought an interesting, you talk about building out your front office and this is an unusual circumstance where the assistant general manager you hired, Wes Wilcox, was somebody who also interviewed for the job, was a finalist, along with, I mean, think of the two final, a couple of the other finalists, uh, Sachin in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, who works with Gerson there now, maybe as close of a friend you have in the business, right? You, not only did you work, you came in together in Houston, um, I mean, did, did you guys, you guys may have literally started at the same time with the Rockets, right? Yeah. Sachin started maybe a year or so okay. before me. Yeah. Yeah. But we, we spent, uh, yeah, five or six years together. Yeah. And so there's Sachin. So you're going at it with him um, for the job. And then Wes Wilcox, again, who had been a general manager with uh, Atlanta and been in, you know, some, uh, some really good front offices in the league. You're offered the job, you accept it. And then the next thing you know, you're going through a process to bring him on as assistant GM. You don't really know him. Uh, I, I thought it said a lot about, hey, I'm going to get the best people and who fits and not worry about all that ancillary stuff. What, what was that like getting to know him? And I'm sure there were people in the league who said to you, geez, do you, do you, do you want to hire a guy who, who wanted your job? How did you work through all of that? Yeah, it was, um, yeah, once you get the job, and then all of a sudden all these things you've never thought of before. But, yeah, first and foremost, you got to hire a staff. Um, and, uh, um, you know, yeah, I didn't I didn't know Wes beforehand. But, um, you know, going through the process and uh, he, he actually flew out to, uh, to Houston to meet with me in person, um, which was an awesome gesture and great to get to know him. Um, and, yeah, I was basically trying to build out this staff of, just the best people I could find. And um, like I said before, you know, best idea wins. We're trying to just get as many good people in as we can. And uh, Wes is not just experience as a, as a former GM, but um, you know, kind of his skill set I thought was very complimentary to mine and, uh, and ultimately went with him and, and he's been uh, nothing short of amazing so far um, as well as the rest of our, our group. You know, we brought in uh, Phil Jabor who I worked with in Houston uh, to kind of head up our, our scouting and personnel department. Paul Johnson's going to be our G League GM uh, from OKC. So um, as well as we kept Ken Catanella on. So we've got, you know, 
Wes, who's been in multiple organizations, Phil, who's been with Philadelphia and uh, Orlando and Houston, and Paul, who's been with Oklahoma City. And so we're kind of getting the, the best of all these, uh, I think, top organizations and trying to mesh it together. You know, Matthew, you mentioned sort of talking to guys in other sports uh, uh, in front offices who, you know, comparing fan bases and how it might be for them if their team hadn't been in the postseason for 14 years. Are there any other front offices and other sports where you've gotten to know the guys or you've gotten a chance to study how they do things and said, hey, that's something I want to incorporate? How much time in your, as you've been preparing to become a GM, have you done that and looking outside the NBA and trying to find some things that might, you know, approximate to what you're, what you might want to do? Yeah, no, we love to learn from, uh, from other sports. And, you know, I think everybody is kind of following baseball's lead. They've kind of been at the forefront, at least analytically. Um, and probably to, to me, you know, originally the preeminent organization doing that was Tampa Bay. Um, and we actually early on in Houston went to meet with, with them when Andrew Frieden was their general manager. And, um, I ended up forging a friend, some friendships with, uh, with three guys who are now running their own team. So Eric Neander, uh, is Tampa Bay's GM, uh, Heim Bloom is now with the Red Sox and James Click just came here to Houston, um, and is running the Astros and, uh, over the years, just picking their brain. I remember one time, um, James Click and I were talking, uh, you know, we were talking about how in basketball we can improve, uh, you know, our, our player development, how our players are, are shooting shots pregame or after practice. And um, he was talking about exactly the same thing, but in the batting cage and how you can replicate game situations as good as possible and, and things like that. And, uh, and it was really illuminating and we were able to, you know, I think take some things. That was just one example, but um, that's a great one in football as well. Um, uh, you know, I think in in some ways baseball is a kind of a good starting point, but football is a better analogy because you've got really, you know, we have five, they have 11 guys that are working together. Baseball is a little more of an individual one-on-one uh, -on -one battle often between the pitcher and the batter. So football, we've had a lot of good, um, you know, kind of discussions with and, you uh, you know, and, and even sometimes we'll take from sports you wouldn't even expect, you know, ideas here or there from from tennis or um, hockey or even golf. So, um, you know, we're just looking for for any kind of, uh, you know, seed of, of uh, you know, that we can take. And, and uh, baseball and football have been great. Yeah. Football, uh, your your own football career uh, at Princeton Oh, wide receiver, right? War number 88, which to me, it seems like I would be giving my big recruit number eight. If, if, if a kid's coming <laughs> in as a wide receiver, 88 is like the preeminent. Were there like bigger, like you got number 88 as a freshman? Was the expectation that like you were going to catch 150 balls at Princeton? How, how do you get 88 as a wide receiver at Princeton? Did they just, just hand it out in the equipment room one day or did you have to negotiate yeah. for it? No, I, I wish it was that. Um, unfortunately, I'll have to uh, belittle myself a little bit. My freshman year, I got number 34, but not even number 34. I was the second number 34. <laughs> right. there, were, there were more than 100 people on our team. Uh, so, yeah, you don't even have your own number. Um, 88 opened up my sophomore year, uh, and I, I grabbed that. And, uh, yeah, it was it was uh, availability was, was the, the main reason I got that one. But, uh, unfortunately – 
um, yeah, it was not uh, was not one of the premier recruits, and uh, didn't really get pick of the litter of, of my favorite number. So, um, yeah, not a great story there. Yeah, well, when you when you dig through the Princeton football archives, and, and you you have to dig a little bit, but there was your junior year, right? You play at the University of San Diego, which is about as close to home as you're going to get to play going to Princeton. I mean, that's you're, you're in Southern California. You're from Ventura County, further north. And the coach at San Diego was your childhood, one of your childhood heroes, right? Jim Harbaugh was the coach at USD. And now according to Princeton Sports Information Records, a spectacular diving catch for his first career catch by Monty McNair. Let's like, can, can you relive that? Is that is, is is that an accurate description of your first college catch? And yeah, well, you know, you were a really good um, elite player when you can remember probably vividly all four of your of your catches. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a play action double post. I was the inside receiver, and uh, I think I was it was a diving catch because I lacked the speed to uh, to catch it in stride. Um, but uh, it was my first catch, and uh, yeah, my childhood hero, Jim Harbaugh. Reason I'm a Colts fan from Southern California, which makes no sense, was on the other sideline. I'm sure he was looking on proudly. <laughs> yeah, he. I, I know he reminisces. I know he shows it in the film room at Michigan quite often. They pull that. <laughs> they pull that thing up. No, it's uh, uh, that's great stuff. But Monty, this was uh, this was fun. I'm glad we got to catch up. Uh, good luck with the start of the season, and uh, happy holidays to the McNairs. Uh, in Houston now. Wait, so your drive. I want to leave you with this. You're going to drive back to SAC with the whole family. Now, describe this caravan. It's a it's a four year old, a two year old, and your wife's. Uh, she she's pregnant again, yes. right? Yes. Is that yeah, what we, we have? have? Is that the, yeah, is that the family caravan headed north? Yeah, the family caravan. We got a uh, my daughter Birdie is uh, is four. My son Towns is two. Uh, my wife is pregnant, due in March, and uh, and we've got our our really um, manly uh, golden doodle dog Sherlock, uh, who will be uh, sitting on people's laps and and uh, wreaking havoc. So uh, we'll be packed to the brim. Uh, I think it's a thirty hour drive. We're gonna have to divide it up into multiple stops, and uh, yeah. but ultimately excited to get back to California. Um, and excited to get the whole family in Sacramento, so I'm, uh, well, you know, not sitting in my apartment alone anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, happy holidays, safe trip when you make that, and and, and good luck with the tip off for the Kings uh, tomorrow night in Denver. Thanks, Woj. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to our guest today, Sacramento Kings General Manager Monty McNair. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to listen to The Low Post with Zach Lowe and The Hoop Collective with Brian Windhurst. Have a great holiday, everyone. We'll catch you next time. There's a new podcast I want to tell you about. 30 for 30 podcast presents March 11th, 2020, a standalone audio documentary that tells the story of the day the NBA shut down and the pandemic became real for many Americans. As told by those who lived the events of the day and built entirely with archival and exclusive interviews, including Rudy Gobert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, 
March 11, 2020 will tell the story of a day that started in one reality and ended in a new one. 30 for 30 podcasts present March 11, 2020. Subscribe now and listen wherever you get your podcasts. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.